I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is a super special episode. It's a very special episode. I'm sharing an interview with author Shelley Puhak, the author of the book The Dark Queens, a joint biography of Fredegund and Brunhild, who you will know from the super special episodes from last summer. And I was able to do those episodes because I was fortunate enough to get a pre-publication advanced reader copy of this book, so I can attest that it's so good. It was really exciting to talk to Shelley all about everything Fredegund and Brunhild and how she wrote the book. So please enjoy. Okay, so I'm joined by Shelley Puhak. Welcome, Shelley. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So you have a book coming out that's about, well, uh, at least one person who the listening audience are very familiar with, but it's equally about someone else. Can you tell like, just introduce your book, just in case somebody doesn't know who you are and what your book is. Yes. So my book is The Dark Queens, and the subtitle is The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. And it is the long-suppressed history of two early medieval queens, Fredegund, who you and your listeners are very familiar with, and her arch nemesis, Brunhild. And so, correct me if I'm wrong, but your previous books have been poetry, right? That you've published? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did you wind up writing this very um, specific history book about these two obscure figures? 
That's a great question. So I do write some nonfiction, mainly articles and essays, but this is my nonfiction debut. And when I stumbled across these Queen stories, I was actually working on a completely different project. And as part of that project, I was participating in this thing called a genographic project, which is like trying to trace deep ancestry. So it's not necessarily like ancestry.com, but it was trying to work out who your earliest genetic maternal ancestors were. And I was oddly enough linked to this Viking queen named Estrid and then to her mother, who's the semi-legendary Sigrid the Haughty, who I think you and your listeners, if you are not familiar with this, with her story, will be very excited about. So all you really need to know about Sigrid is that the King of Norway slaps her across the face during marriage negotiations. Sigrid tells him he'll be sorry. She spends the next decade organizing a multinational alliance. She ambushes him at sea. She forces him to commit suicide by jumping into the icy waters while she watches and waves from her own boat. So I thought that was the story, which is pretty cool, that I was going to be writing. And then in the course of that, I come across a source that makes this like offhand mention that if you think the grudge match between Sigrid and the King of Norway is bad, you should really look at the grudge match between Queen Brunhild and Queen Fredegund. And I had never heard of either of these queens, but clearly immediately I am very curious. And at the same time, as I describe in the opening of my book, I also happened to buy one of those Viking hats at a costume store for a Halloween party. It was one of those like giant plastic horned helmets with the blonde braids glued on. I must have had Vikings on the brain because of Sigurd the Haughty, but I also knew like this helmet was linked in some way to a woman in an opera named Brunhild. And then I realized there was a connection to the story of Fredegund and Brunhild and I was hooked and I kind of fell down the research rabbit hole and this book resulted. Okay. The research rabbit hole is a big thing that I'm really curious about because, okay, my listeners know, but just to recap, I, somebody mentioned to me, oh, you should do an episode about Fredegund. And then I just like Googled it. I found the Wikipedia page. I'm like, whoa, this is interesting. And then I was like, I wish that there was a biography <laughs> of her. And then I came across one of your articles. Um, and at the bottom of the article said like, she's writing a book about, about this. And I'm like, oh my God, like what perfect timing. So like, there wasn't a book about this until your book. So like the research, like you are kind of the first person to like delve this deep into it. So what, how did you find the information you found? So as you well know, is the case with probably every historical woman that you have done any episode on, basically all we know about them is through some man. Mm -hmm. So I had to sift through all that, figure out who each man was, what his agenda was, what could he possibly realistically know and not know and how much um, credence to give to his account. And the bibliography in this book is quite ridiculous. I think it's like 20 pages. So there's a lot, but I'll like, I'm happy to share some of my favorite highlights of uh, these these men and the queen's lives. So can I ask one question first? So like when you're sure. doing this research, was were you looking at primary source documents? Like yes. things written, like I don't is Frankish a written language? Like it's all in Latin. Oh okay. so they were writing in Latin. And then luckily my Latin is quite terrible. I had to uh, in many cases rely on a translator, but luckily a lot of these have already been translated for me. But okay. a lot of times I went back to the original Latin and then kind of double checked because there were some really interesting things where there were words that particularly like when it applied to Fredica, we were like, is she mad? Is she scared? Is she upset? 
and the shade of meaning of that word could really change something, particularly when it came to things like a pregnancy, a miscarriage, the loss of a child, and uh, certain motivations that men had said, oh, well, clearly they were feeling X, Y, or Z. And then you went back and said, well, actually, it seems more likely, given all of the other evidence, that this was what was really happening. So primary sources, but also a lot of secondary scholarship. There are a very committed group of scholars that specialize in Merovingian history. And I was lucky to get to talk and interact with a, a lot of them. And there's uh, one in particular who has done a lot of work on Merovingian women named E.T. Daly, who I can give a little shout out to. So if people are really interested in scholarship on this era, that's a good person's work to check out. So did you, were you in France? Like where are these documents housed? Are we able to do it digitally or? So I did actually do a lot of traveling. This was pre-pandemic. So this was in 2019, right before everything shut down. I had no idea how lucky I was, but most of these have, um, they are digitized. So you can look at the manuscripts online. And then a lot of them that have been translated are in academic libraries. So it is possible to get a copy. I was really lucky to have some kindly librarians sort of bend over backwards to get me these really obscure texts through interlibrary loans that were like very convoluted, but I was extraordinarily like fortunate that way. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to say before I ask a question, like what some of your favorite sources were. So what out of the like 20 pages of references, like what were the ones that you were most excited about or were most interesting? I think we get most of our dialogue from a guy named Gregory of Tours. He's kind of a fun source because he really hates women in power, but he's Brunhild's ally and he's really embarrassed that Brunhild helped to get him his job as bishop. So he actually like never mentions that she gets him his job. And we only find this out by a mention from one of his friends and then you go, oh, okay. <laughs> but he really goes after Fredegan though. She basically enrages him and he is very, uh, we could say a very anti-Fredegan source. But he is also an eyewitness. So particularly for things like weather events or what happened in what order, we can definitely count on him. And he actually goes on trial for slandering Fredegund and you know has his life hanging in the balance and has to pull in some friends and flatter her. So it is pretty interesting that he's actually involved in it. He has this friend named Fortunatus, who's a court poet who makes his living writing poems for rich people. So he's friends with basically anyone who's anyone in the Frankish kingdoms on both sides, but he writes poems for both Brunhild and for Fredegan. And what's really interesting is obviously they're biased, but you get a sense of how these women want to be seen. And one thing I found really interesting was even well before Fredegan was regent, the poem he writes about her, it talks about her brains, just how smart she is. And it, that's not really typical for the time period. It's just, she's shrewd, she's great at making decisions. And it also says that she shares in the rule with the king. It's really interesting that publicly they're going out saying the king needs this woman to help him rule and that's okay. Everyone's all right with that. So mm -hmm. I found that a little surprising and interesting. And you then there are some, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. There are some letters written by Brunhild and her son that are uh, a lot of fun. Like there's one of these where the Byzantine emperor sends a message to Brunhild's son and she writes back really sternly and she basically slaps him down and says, I'm the one you need to be dealing with. And he does deal with her from then on. 
So it is great to get these little glimpses of their personalities. And then there's a lot of more boring and bureaucratic things like church records and church councils and historical chronicles. But those would probably be my favorite. I'm so excited just thinking that you got to read an actual letter Brunhild wrote. That's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> She's very imperious and she refers to herself in the royal we. So we have counseled, you know, war or we have decided this or that. It's, it's kind of fun. So I was just going to ask before, um, you mentioned in the Gregory of Tours that he talked about weather events and things. So the weather was wild. <laughs> right? Yes. Like there, it was just like, what, like describe the, like the weather of the, like the story. It's just like, there's all these people making, you know, assassination attempts and like wars and whatever, but it's like, and also guess what? It's like raining for like 10 years or something. Like what was going on? Yeah. Well, we have, they're both born right after this horrific climate change and it's two degrees, except in our case, we're worried about it becoming two degrees warmer. In their case, it went two degrees colder and that disrupts everything. So we have 18 months of darkness, there's snow in the summer. This is the entire world, right? And then it seems like it takes a while for things to get back up to speed. And then there's another volcanic eruption and we have more famine. And on top of that, we have bubonic plague. And then it seems like the world rebounds by just, there's a lot of rain. There's just a ton of rain. It's a really wet, damp period. And you can imagine that doesn't bode well for everyone's health as in there's just constant flooding. Everybody's getting dysentery from the flood water. There's, you know, just cold and damp, a lot of mold. It's, it's really awful. Mud, mm -hmm. mud everywhere, right? Yeah. So just as that is like the, the backdrop for everything that's happening, like it's just, like it feels like a movie. Honestly, it's just like everything simultaneous. Like it's giving me Game of Thrones, right? Where it's just like, well, it's been winter for 20 years and <laughs> everyone's kind of <laughs> losing their mind. Yeah, so just that dysentery you mentioned. So that was just like in going through, like just reading the book. Um, it's just like, and then, and then this child died of dysentery and then she like managed to get pregnant again. And then that child died of dysentery. And it's just like, oh my God, it just, it's like unrelenting. Like the, the death, it seemed to be a lot of children dying. Yes. And, and I think unrelenting is a great adjective for it. It's just one thing after another. I don't know how people manage to endure. It's quite overwhelming. And the thing that's so interesting is that there was this knowledge that you should really boil water and you should only drink clean water. And, you know, there they were some aqueducts, Roman aqueducts that were still functioning. So there was this knowledge, but somehow it wasn't always translating into practice. There was just so much chaos in terms of being able to repair infrastructure that they couldn't keep up. So that's the other frustrating thing of if people weren't completely ignorant as to why this was happening, but they just couldn't stop it from happening and I think that's even more frustrating must be to live through mm -hmm. well yeah if you're just like constantly dealing with like climate-based disasters it's like yeah there's not time to really do the like next level city building structuring type stuff there's a part now I'm just like I read this like a bit ago but what was this there's part of it and I think it was Brunhild or no maybe it's Fredigan there was a part where like it was something about there was a child was sick and they were like, yeah, we should like, 
we should all separate everybody. And they're like, no, let's all go in church all together and stay awake for like 72 yeah, hours all yes. together. What was that? Can you tell that? Part? That's Kate Gunstrom who edits to deal with the plague. And he decides, so some people are saying, having basically rudimentary travel restrictions. Like we really shouldn't travel, we should stay apart. And they're understanding that it's how it spreads. So even Gregory of Tours, who's very superstitious, sort of credulous man who believes that like, you know, stars and comets are comets are causing people to drop dead. But he understands, oh, a ship comes into port, somebody on the ship has the plague. The next thing you know, the people who did business with that man have the plague and then his family has the plague and then their neighbors have the plague. So they were understanding how it spread. And a lot of people are saying we should not have fairs. We should not get together. But King Guntram's like, I need a win. So I'm going to make everybody come together for several days and we're all gonna be packed in and we're just going to pray and have these processions and all these people drop dead, but not seeing the connection. And then there's this great cure where they decide that some woman takes a bit of thread or maybe it's embroidery from his cape and puts it in some water and has her child drink it and that cures him. So people are starting to think that if they can just get pieces of royal cloaks and soak them in water, that that will cure the plague. So scary. It's so like this story, especially, but I guess lately, anytime I'm reading about somebody living through any sort of <laughs> pandemic, I'm just like, <laughs> I relate, but it's so, yeah. Cause I think there's this really, and I think this comes across really well in your book. Um, there's a sense like you sort of spoke to it that people think like oh people in those like early medieval period like well they were just a bunch of dum-dums like they didn't know what they were doing like they were just kind of like in this you know the dark ages sort of thing where it's like no like even if they didn't know like germ theory like they could figure out like a ship comes and then that's where the plague comes from like they were smart I liked reading about how they were making decisions that are similar to decisions people would be making today like they're not just like fools who are just like everything's witchcraft or whatever it's like they're like I don't know did you find like relatable things that people were doing when you were researching it like decisions that surprised you that felt like modern yeah I mean I think even Fredegund has this one decision where she wants to get rid of one of her her stepson her only surviving stepson who's in the way between her her sons and and the throne. And so she sends him to an area that's having an outbreak, comes up with an excuse because she clearly, there's some understanding, as you say, maybe not of germ theory, but like this area, more people are dying. I'm going to send him here in the hopes that, that he will die, which is diabolical, but also seems like something somebody could pull off today. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think even just some of the decisions that both Queens make surrounding pregnancy, early childhood of their of their children even the degree of their grief seems really modern when you hear of Fredegon being just devastated and she's sobbing publicly particularly given what we know of her sort of imperious temperament the fact that she's just that broken and Fortunatus this court poet has to make these poems to say please stop crying and there's going to be another son and you're going to get to snuggle him and the fact that they would use a word about like talk about snuggling and cuddling children even if it's a stretch it still gives you a sense of how close people were or expected to be 
to their children and how mm. devastated they were when they died so much more frequently than what we have to endure. And that felt very modern too. Yeah, I think there's sort of this, um, there's a lot of, there was so much more child death in history than there is now for various reasons. So I think there's sort of like a flippancy that not just historians, but just like people who read it, but they're like, oh yeah, everyone had 12 children because they knew like five of them would die and whatever. It's like, oh, another child died, like on we go. But it's like, no, like it was, it, of course people were upset when their children died. Like, it's not just like, well, there goes another one. I guess we'll just have another baby. Yeah, and I'm even thinking of things like postpartum depression that it seems pretty clear based on the evidence that Fredegan has a really bad bout of that. And they describe it even though they don't use the sort of terms that we would. But there are things like that that seem uh, really modern. I also think there's this great interlude where we get to this rebellion in a convent, but there's these des that description of both surgery, where men are having surgery on their testicles based on some procedure they saw done in Byzantium. So you're saying, okay, so people are able to transport medical knowledge across these, these distances and, and copy. And at least in this case, this person survives. We don't know how many people survive, but we have at least a few people where it's successful. So they're performing some sort of basic rudimentary successful surgery. But also there are a lot of cases of people who are biologically sexed as male, but are living as women. There's like graves that have been found. There's this one particular case of this person who was born a man, but lives as a woman in a convent. And so that, that's also, I think the, their sense of gender surprised me often that it was a little more fluid than we might expect, or we typically think it was black or white and that they did have some gray area as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was um, not an era that I've ever read about before this, like I've read about, you know, like the Romans and I've read about I don't know, like my historical knowledge until I read your book was kind of like Romans, Egyptians, and it jumps forward to like the Renaissance, <laughs> like what happened in Europe in the middle. And I guess it's, is it because there's just less sources that people know not as much about this time period? Or was it just because they were wiped out? And then, well, I guess I know like Charlemagne came in and then like, you know, about that, but the stuff that happened before, did they, was it suppressed? I think it's twofold. So there's been this estimate that of the sources that survive, there are probably less than 1% of what was produced. But because so little survived, it became really easy for the next dynasty to say, these people were idiots, they didn't produce a lot of information and look how smart we are in comparison to them. So there was a bit of a public relations campaign on the part of Charlemagne and his dynasty. But also the Merovingians made a bad decision they didn't know it at the time, to use papyrus for a lot of their records. And papyrus can survive for you know, thousands and thousands of years in the dry climate of Egypt. But once you get it into the damp and the cold of Europe, it does not last nearly as long. So a lot of what has survived just happened to be on parchment. And there was a shortage, a papyrus shortage. And, and there were these issues with trade. So people switched to parchment. And so it just happened that everybody who wrote on parchment those records survived and all the records that had been written on papyrus didn't. And that's just kind of the luck of the, the draw. So some of that accounts for the lack of sources. And then also there was a lot of purposeful suppression as well. Which leads me to something that I still find it very, I wouldn't say enraging, but just like so annoying, which is that after the death of both women, 
that it was kind of like she was the king's mother at the end like the fact that it's Fredigan's tomb right that's just like wife mother and it's like oh my god she did so much like it was her like immediately like upon the death of both women like what they did was kind of hidden away like sort of like we don't we kind of don't want people to know that like women did stuff so let's just like not let anyone know what happened Absolutely. And, you know, something that really surprised me is I assumed that Brynhild and Fredegan were exceptions to the rule. And I was really surprised to find out that there were actually quite a few female political leaders in the sixth century. So if your listeners are interested, we have a queen in Lombard, Italy. There's a regent, um, Sophia, for the Byzantine Empire. Japan's being ruled by an empress, Suiko. There's a Mayan queen, name's Yal Iknal. And so we have all these women that happen to be ruling at the same time. And then we also have women that are powerful abbesses and business owners and women who are entangled in political plots. And we have nuns in armed rebellions. So given how few sources survive, I think we only know the half of it. But it's really surprising that there were so many women in such a chaotic era that were thriving, not just surviving and getting by, but actually thriving and ruling. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of stuff is so interesting to me too, because there's such a, it's sort of like, I don't know, the common way that history is taught in general. It's kind of like, you know, women weren't able to do anything. And then suddenly like the 1960s, birth control pill, women could have jobs now where it's like, no, it's not been like an upward trajectory and like women get more and more rights. It's like there were places like this where that was not so much of an issue. And then that was suppressed. And then this other place, like it's, I love reading with these little pockets of time to learn that like, it's not, history is not a straight line of just like things are just always getting better, which is so false but especially in terms of women's rights. That's so fascinating. I've just been reading about a woman in um, 10th century Kashmir and how she was like, anyway, which was really interesting. Like she ruled, it was chaotic there. And then she came in with like very ruthless, successful style. And then she like brought stability for 40 years to this region. Fascinating. Wow. Yeah, no, I know. So it's like, it's not new the idea of like women could be leaders, but you just don't hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you just one final question, which is what influence do you think the Fredegan and Brunhild had on, on history or just like, well, I guess more on a micro level, like the development of Western Europe, like what do you think their era, what's the significance of it? So I think there probably are three key ways that they influence Western Europe. So the first and probably the most obvious is one provides the air and the other the land that shapes Europe for the next few centuries. So Fredegan is the one through who, you know, her blood flows through all the subsequent Merovingian kings. And I say that just because there were some questions about her son's legitimacy. These might have been the usual slurs, but because we have no DNA, we can't prove paternity. So she's the only one we can really be certain of. And anyone who follows is her descendant. And there are even um, people alive today, they call themselves the order of the Merovingian dynasty who claim to be descended from Fredegan. So they trace their lineage back through a woman named Bertha Broadfoot 
who is Charlemagne's mother, who may have been part of the Merovingian royal family, kind of tangentially. So there is that sort of intriguing bit that if it's not for Fredegund, we don't have the rest of the dynasty. And then obviously Brunhild and Fredegund to an extent provide the land. So when Fredegund's son, Clothar II, deposes her, he's getting a ready-made empire. He's moving in. She's already united the bulk of Western Europe you know, for him. We know that they have an outside influence on future queens. So there are women who try to follow in their footsteps or take lessons from them, and we know are aware of their example. So there's women who try to become regents themselves, or they adopt some of their survival tactics. And there's even a great case, this queen, Adelaide of Maurienne, who has a matching sarcophagus made, like her. So her and Fredegon have matching, or matchy-matchy, even after, after death. So we know that a lot of royal French women read their stories, are aware of their legacy, and we can assume there's some influence there. But I think the most important is that the backlash to their reigns like reverberates and it really impacts Europe for centuries. I would argue that it sets the world back in a lot of ways. Both of these women seem to foresee the wisdom of there being a single heir model. They're both trying to consolidate it behind a single male heir as opposed to keep dividing it up. As we know that that probably would have worked out a little bit better and prevented you know, some wars if that had worked. But we also know that like when Brunhild is betrayed by the people who work for her and Clothar II, Fredegund's son moves in, he basically dooms the whole dynasty because he makes has to make some concessions. So in order to get what he wants, and part of that is he limits the king's power and he agrees to split the Frankish empires into three. So it basically does away with the dream of like a unified empire like Rome and it leads to the fragmented nation states that we see then for the next you know thousand years. So there's that there's kind of two models of government where we could have this sort of Roman Empire with these sort of semi-autonomous provinces or we could have these sort of fragmented kingdoms that are always going to be jockeying for position and, and, and a lot of infighting. So they also, both of them stand up to the church at a time when the church is consolidating power and it's growing increasingly misogynistic and more fundamentalist. So they're on the losing side of that, but unfortunately the way the church reacts to both of them influences women for centuries. So we have to keep in mind that about a generation before them, women are still serving as deacons. So they're actually participating in mass that has to be outlawed. Priests are still getting married things are a lot more in flux and there's two denominations of Christianity and it's kind of not clear which one's going to win out, whether it's going to be the more tolerant branch or if it's going to be what eventually becomes Catholicism. We know Fredegon seems to be what I'd say a, a flexible Christian. There's some potentially some pagan influences there and Brunhild is certainly was raised in a more tolerant Christian background. She's very tolerant of Jews in her kingdom and, and she is like smacked down by the Pope for that. So we know that they have this more cosmopolitan worldview, maybe not because they're nice people, but just out of sheer necessity that they have to work with whoever will have them. But we also see like Fredegon clearly assassinating bishops and Brunhild brings a rape case against another bishop and, you know, sticks up to some particularly 
fundamentalist monks and kicks them out of her kingdom. So they unfortunately don't win out, but I think they're part of that, that struggle where it could have gone either way. And the fact that it goes against them, we essentially pay the price. Mm -hmm. So I actually have a question for you, if that's okay. Please. Yeah. Um, Or maybe two. So you are clearly team Fredigan. (laughs) By the way, I love your, um, that's so Fredigan merch. And I have to tell you, I just ordered a tote. No. Oh, uh, I love it. Okay. But I also, I'm like really curious what caught your imagination other than maybe the red hair. Okay. That is a factor. But um, so I think it was honestly because I had asked my listeners, I was just like, what are some interesting stories? Like what are some lesson? And one of the listeners said, Fredigan. And I'm like, well, who's that? And I Googled it. So I honestly, I read about Fredigan first. So that's, I came to this all from a Fredigan lens. So I was just like, who's Fredigan? And then, excuse me. Brunhild, I'm like, oh, that's Fredigan's enemy. Like that was how I didn't make the choice after seeing them both and assessing. <laughs> it was just kind of like I came to it from a Fredigan point of view. And from her point of view, Brunhild is the enemy. And that was just kind of where I came to it from. But Brunhild, I think, I do think one day I might do a Brunhild episode, just like flip it around to be like from her point of view, what was happening. But I don't know. Also, Fredigan feels kind of like the underdog to me a bit. And the way that she kept trying to assassinate Brunhild and it kept not working was like, <laughs> made me like her more. It was like charming. And then the fact like her, mil- the fact that her military victories were so stylish, like the, the, the walking forest, it's like, that was her is just, I don't know. So it's Fredigand has a sort of, I think because she wasn't as my senses, not as powerful as Brunhild. So she was like scrappier. And also the fact that she came from being like an enslaved person to being so powerful where Brunhild kind of had the, she was like more groomed for it. So yeah, so I think it's it's the underdog quality. I appreciate And also just her her flair. Her flair. Do you have a favorite Fredigan story? I love so many things about Fredigan. Um, when I was getting ready for this interview, I was just like, remember this? Remember when she did this? And I was just like, oh, she did so many cool things. I was like looking at my notes from when I was doing the episode. I love the walking trees. I love, um, I love that she kind of invented putting poison on blades. <laughs> Daggers. <laughs> that was iconic. But I mean, the part where, God, I forgot what it even was, but when somebody had said that she had maybe committed adultery and then it's like, well, she could have 12 witnesses speak yes. for her. And she brought in 300 and they were like all like bishops and like the most important people. Like, I think that's- Bam. That's that's the most iconic Fredigan moment for me. I think the three hundred character witnesses. Yes, <laughs> excellent. Although I do like, I like one of her military victories. I forget the details exactly, but it's where she got all of her army to like cut their hair so they would look like the other people. Yes, the Bretons. When she's uh, so she wants to go against Guntram, but she doesn't want to be seen to do so. So she is like, yeah, these these the Bretons are fighting against you. So we're just going to pretend we're Bretons. Yeah. Well, and where hair was so important to the, like culturally, but she's like, what if I just like cut off everyone's hair? And then, yeah. So just like, I, I'm not someone who's into reading about like battle history, but Fred again, every time she did one, it was something cool like that. that made me interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. I love hearing that. She is quite a character. And what's so fascinating about both of these women is they never seem to have internalized the misogyny that's all around them. 
there's doesn't seem to be a lot of self-doubt there might have been but we don't see it but they were like why not why can't I yeah yeah I'm just as good as the rest of you if not better here I go well and I think I appreciate that too I love like not just like as a woman reading about women but just like as a person like I love reading about somebody who's just like that confident and outside the box and like who sees who's in this like pit of vipers environment where like anyone could betray you at any point but the way that they're both kind of like always one step ahead of that is like gratifying to read where they're sort of they are in ostensibly powerful roles but they could so easily be brought down and the fact that they weren't was very um not inspirational but just like satisfying to read I think I think my favorite Fred against story has to do with Sigurd's assassination, but I just find it amazing that first she has this severe postpartum depression. She basically seems like she might be borderline, you know, psychotic, like she's comatose, and she somehow is able to snap out of that, which in and of itself, right? Everyone else around her is completely freaking out. They're under siege. They assume they're about ready to die, and none of the military advisors or her own husband can figure a way out of it. And she doesn't just recover. She's able to keep a cool head and she's able to come up with an innovative idea for an assassination and then convince two boys to go on a suicide mission for her. I just can't imagine the, the wherewithal, especially on days when I can't get my grocery list together and she was able to pull all of that off in such a short period of time. It's just stunning. I love that. I love that story too. I love just the image of just like everyone being chaotic around her. And she's just like pulls herself even just momentarily to be like, okay, like clearly you can't do anything without me. Like, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> like we're good. And then she can just like go back into her coma or whatever. Like, like the, yeah, just the constant really smart things she did. And because you're more um, objective about all of this than I am, what's your, what's a Brunhilde iconic moment that you really like? I really, I do like when Brunhild goes after the church occasionally. I also love that she cooperates. I didn't know this story, but Pope Gregory the Great happens to be somewhat progressive in that he's willing to work with women because nobody else seems to really want to work with him. And I love part of this idea that Bede erases from his history, but that Pope Gregory the Great thanks her and says, you're the reason that Britain is Christianized and that she's the one funding his missionary movement to send the monks over to Canterbury in the little kingdom of Kent and essentially convert all of those people. So that's that was just something that I find really interesting that that's like an outsized influence that we don't know about that's kind of been erased. I love her letters, particularly there's a few where she, there's one in particular where her grandson is being held hostage by the Byzantines and they're trying to get her to go to war in order to get him back. And she writes these letters to the Byzantine Empress saying, essentially part of her plays on her pity, like, oh, feel bad for me. My, I miss my grandson and he's my only link to my dead daughter and I'm just so sad. But then a minute later, there's that steal and like, it would be very unfortunate if something were to happen to your, you know, to your son, who's about the same age as my grandson. So you might want to keep that in mind and how she's able to kind of veer back and forth. So anytime I think that she maybe has lost the plot and she's genuinely upset and then you realize, nope, she's 
thought this all out ahead of time. I also really love about Brunhild how she builds these networks with other women. So as much as we have the two of them fighting against one another, there was some part of it that was kind of charming for me to realize that it wasn't necessarily personal because I think it can be really easy to get caught up in the catfight aspect of it as opposed to, which I like that you focused on them as political rivals of just somebody's got to win and we've got to do this. But I really like how there's this treaty that she negotiates and she makes sure throughout the treaty to basically guard the rights of all these other women. So, you know, she, it's called the Treaty of Andalot and we know there's cooperation between her, another one of her daughters, her daughter-in-law, as well as Guntram's own daughter. And a third of that treaty just has to do with women. Like Brunhild gets legal protection for herself, for all of these other women. It says we're financially independent. You can't force us into a convent. We can keep our property. We can dispose of it as we wish. So I really like that about her. And I also love this moment where Brunhild and Fredegan have to have this short-lived alliance. So there's this time when Fredegan basically has to grudgingly, symbolically adopt Brunhild's son. And I just love to imagine the behind the scenes of that for both of them, because you know, there had to be some sort of gritting of the teeth and getting on with it. But I also like that that really shows their very practical sides and how in some ways they're more similar than they are different. I love what you said about um, like the the rights and stuff that Brunhild was codifying for women and stuff, because I do, one does find in stories where women take power especially in ones where they're like the regent, but technically the like child boy is the king. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're like, oh, I'm just like, a lot of times they like separate from their gender, I think out of survival, but they really don't stand up for other women because they know that that wouldn't be popular. I'm, I can't think of a specific example, but there's certainly women who have been in power, but they really rule, I would say Elizabeth the first, um, but they really rule like men, right. frankly right? Because that's kind of what they have to do. It's like the way that they can get respect is by being like, oh, I'm not really a woman. Like I look like a woman, but I'm not really a woman. I'm not going to like give like women rights. So I, I respect that Brunhilde and Fredegand didn't, well, and you, like you were saying, the cultural context of the time, it's like that misogyny of religion was not super influential at that point. So they were able to have a bit more leeway, I guess, than what future generations had to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too, to think about how there's this horrific climate change and this pandemic, and those are very bad things, but they also open up a lot of opportunities for women. And I think that that's just something that I am trying to keep in mind because people are more willing to try something unconventional. I mean, there is a shortage a lot of times of able leaders. We know a lot of the men just keep dying but there is this sense of, you know what, things are kind of going to hell in a handbasket. Why not? Why not try this? And so there is, I think, a little bit of hope to be found in that, even just in our own time too, that sometimes really extreme circumstances can push us to think out of the box and to maybe allow people who've been marginalized to come to the forefront and to contribute to greater degree. Mm -hmm. Your book comes out on February 22nd. It does, right? yes. Mm -hmm. And are you going to, well, this is just a curious question of my own. Like you're going to be doing, I assume, like lots of other interviews and like you're going to be. I know that as far as it's a mix of things right now being 
virtual and being in person. I know that there is a virtual event on the 27th, I believe it's February 27th, DC's Politics and Prose, but it's a free virtual event for anyone who would like to join. And I know there are some in-person events and a mix of virtual events, but anyone who's interested can certainly check out my website. It's shellypuhack.com and that's Shelly with an E-Y, P-U-H-A-K.com. And there's an events page and I am updating that as more and more things get on the schedule. So thank you. And thank you so much for your support of the book. I was so grateful to stumble across this podcast and to hear of your love of all things Fredagon. And I'm very excited to get my tote. Really? I'm. That's honestly, this is like a beautiful first full circle moment because I just like found your book, did this podcast and now you have the tote. It's like, I don't know. It's a circle of life. It's beautiful. <laughs> so good luck with all of your promotion. And I'm so excited for when the book comes out. And I know like listeners have been telling me like they're excited to get the book. So I, you'll get a little vulgar history, little bump of purchases, I hope. Well, thank you. That's so gratifying. It's excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated chatting with you. So as we said in the episode, you can get a copy of The Dark Queens all over the place. There are links in, at Shelly's website, shellypuhack.com, and I've got the link in the show notes as well. And also check out her website to learn about all of the online events she has coming up, because obviously, as you just listened to, she's a delightful person to listen to. She has so much to say about this book and about these queens, and I'm so happy that I got to share this interview with all of you. Um, regular episodes of Vulgar History are going to start next week. Uh, season five is going to start on March 2nd, so stay tuned for that. And until then, keep your mask on and your tits out. Take care. <laughs>